Father God, it is those words that many of us long to speak. Words that affirm your victory in our life, in this world. Words that we know we will say upon your return. Words that were said when you died on that cross. Lord, we know that the hour of darkness is over and you are the light of the world. And it is in you that our darkness becomes light. So God, we rejoice in who you are. We rejoice in the cross. We rejoice in the eternity that's going to be there for us on your return. Until then, Lord, we celebrate, we thank you for what you've done for us, for a new chance at life. God, and for many of us in this room, there is pain, there is hurt, there are experiences, there is loss that comes to our mind when we say these words, but you've given us the reassurance that the hour of darkness is over and you have won. And we thank you. It is your son, Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I didn't get a chance to say it last week, but Happy New Year's. And uh, for many of you, you've probably set New Year's resolutions and goals, and this is not a sermon about that, because this is, this is what you think you come to in the beginning of the year. Church, we're talking about goals and resolutions. I'm hoping and I'm praying that those of you who have set goals or resolutions, that those are still being met 12 days in. Uh, I know for me, I'll share with you something that I've done. Um, it is uh, a venture that I started on January 1, and I'm not alone. Pastor Mark's doing it with me, and um, Eric, our bass player, is also in this. We are embarking on something called Whole30. If you don't know what that is, it's basically, I hear like mumbling, like, yeah, I've done that before. Um, it's like nothing processed, nothing, um, no um, sugars, uh, no preservatives, no bread, no rice. I'm Puerto Rican. I cannot have rice. This is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. It is. The idea is it's a gut cleanse. It's like cleaning you and, and you know, just kind of resetting and then Ideally, you're supposed to like reintroduce things to see what tolerances you have and all that. And they say that day 10 and 11 are the hardest days. So I've just passed those. It hasn't gotten any easier, though. Uh, I still have these cravings, and, and it's just been really bizarre to try and figure out, okay, like what can I eat? But I'm telling you that so you can hold me accountable. This is my resolution. I at least want to get through this month. And, and do that. And I know there are many of you who have shared with me goals that you have for this year. I've met with a few of you, and I'm going to hold you guys accountable to that. But I hope and I pray that you guys are becoming better people. You're making uh, strides to do that. And, and that is what um, many of us do in the beginning of the year. So I am, I am slowly getting there. Um, if I pass out, you know why, what happened? I'm just like low on everything. But I feel good. I feel good. I haven't felt that 
I haven't felt that yet. Um, before we begin also, there is just an exciting event that we're going to be doing, and you've, you've heard us talk about it. Uh, we are hosting the One Project, and if you don't know what that is, um, yeah, there's excitement. and It's, it's an amazing weekend. Um, Alejandro is going to come up and talk a little bit about that later, but that is the weekend of February 16. Um, it's going to be an amazing event, and if you want to know what it's all about, it's all about Jesus. So if you have signed up, um, we, we can't wait to have that. It's going to be in this space for three days, um, and we hope you can join us um, and many others to just talk about what really matters in our church and in our community. But I want to start today with a question, and maybe you've heard this term. It's game, recognize game. If you don't know what that means, you, you've probably seen some form of that in your everyday life. If you're a cyclist, um, or if you ride motorcycles, it's you see someone coming down the road and the other guy's passing you and you kind of give like, you know, the peace sign or like the acknowledgement of someone else who's also on a motorcycle. Or um, if you cycle, it's the greeting of we're doing the same thing and we are passionate about the same kind of activity. Uh, maybe you have seen it um, in, in other areas and mostly you see it in sports. And one of the things that happens in sports is there is a level of, of, of clout, of superstardom, and usually it's the one star recognizes the other star on the team, and they greet each other, and, and you see it when they go through lines and they shake hands. The two stars, they spend a little bit more time together. They give each other a hug. There is this mutual respect of, we know that we are the best at what we do. If you're a good athlete, you will do this. And, and I want to show you guys a video, an example of what this looks like. Eight seconds, Dirk against Randall. Let's get out of here. Dirk with the shot. And with 2.1, that's how far we are from getting out of here. That's what he does. He scored five points in the first three quarters, eight in the fourth quarter. He says, tough shot. And I like this video for several reasons. One, it's showing the Lakers losing. Um, but it's showing someone who, if you watch sports, um, the late and the great Kobe Bryant acknowledging Dirk Nowitzki on a really tough shot. And he recognizes them, he pats them, and he's pretty impressed with that. And it's Kobe recognizing that there is someone else great in the building. Although he's not playing, he recognizes that there is greatness on the floor. And he's not going to ignore it, but he's going to give the man the respect that he is due John chapter 3, Jesus teaches a lesson to a Pharisee. In this chapter, it's known for a specific verse, John 3, 16. We know that verse if you've been in the church, and I'm going to talk about those of you who've been in the church since you were babies, but we go, we, when we think of John 3, we think of that verse. But in the very beginning of this chapter, we meet a man called Nicodemus, and it says, John, in verse 1, it says of John chapter 3, Now there was a Pharisee 
a man named Nicodemus who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. A Pharisee openly recognizing and acknowledging who Jesus actually is. This is kind of a big deal for several reasons. It's not very often that a Pharisee would recognize someone who isn't a Pharisee to be doing these kinds of things. Because at this point in Jesus' life, he's begun his ministry, he's doing signs and wonders and miracles, and then he's claiming to be the Messiah, the Son of God. And we know that up until this point, there are people who have followed, but also who are trying to get him in trouble, mostly the Pharisees. They're the ones who are trying to trap him. They're the ones that are trying to ask him questions to maybe, if, if maybe they can catch him doing something wrong on the Sabbath. Maybe they can figure out how we can just shut this guy up. And here we have Nicodemus acknowledging who Jesus actually is. Pharisees, this is what we know about them. Pharisees, they were consistently depicted in the gospel as antagonists. According to most Bible dictionaries, they are known as greedy, hypocritical, lacking in a sense of justice, overly concerned with fulfilling the literal details of the law, and insensitive to the spiritual, the spiritual significance of the Old Testament. So this is giving some context to who actually Nicodemus is and the group that he is a part of. This is what they're known for. And yet he recognizes this man named Jesus. In fact, if we look at the word that he uses to describe him, he doesn't say first Jesus. He calls him by what word? Rabbi. And that's already saying a lot without saying too much. The term, the term rabbi, the title, means teacher of the law, which is what Nicodemus should have been doing and what he was doing. And Jesus was not given the title of Pharisee, but yet he was called rabbi. He was teaching the law according to what Nicodemus had seen with his own eyes. And he uses an Old Testament term to define Jesus by. The Pharisees who were very not concerned with the spiritual part of the Old Testament now uses a word to, in the Old Testament to describe Jesus. By this statement alone, he's telling Jesus a lot, and he's telling the reader a lot too. One, Nicodemus is showing, he's showing some humility. You have to do that. If you are in a position of, of stature, of, uh, in a high role, and, and you recognize that from the world's eyes and perception, someone less than you is also a teacher like you, you're showing a bit of vulnerability and saying, hey, I recognize your talents and your gifts. And he's giving Jesus the time of day. He's acknowledging something that so many and many more will never. And he's acknowledging that Jesus is indeed who he says he is. 
What we know later is that Nicodemus and Joseph, this is post-Jesus being crucified, he is one of the people who is preserving and taking care of the body of Jesus. Nicodemus belonging to a group who, for the most part, were trying to oppose this man. He goes in the opposite direction and one is seeking, out, seeking him out, but also later on being there after he dies because he knows who this man actually is. Going against what everyone else is doing is not a common practice in our world today. It's a rare trait to do something like what Nicodemus did. His group would not have done this. These these Pharisees as a whole were not collectively in favor of Jesus, yet he saw something, he saw greatness, he recognized it, and he put his self, his title aside because he knew that there was something great in this man. Going against what your group and what your crew is doing is, is a rare trait today. For fear that you might get canceled for losing a friendship or being looked at differently because you chose to go in the opposite direction or make a different decision or speak out about something that you truly believe in, yet we've lost that for fear that we might not be liked. There are many of us who know what we need to do in our life, who are called to do something, to make a decision or to speak up when we're put down, when someone else is put down, or when someone attacks our beliefs, our foundation, we know what the right thing is, but we won't say it, we won't do it, for fear of being called out, for fear of being not liked, for fear of getting canceled. I know this because it's happened in my own life. Losing friends because you go in the opposite direction of what they're doing. And they think you're either better than them or you're not like them, so they cut you off. This was the risk that Nicodemus was taking. Being part of such a prestige group, he was putting himself out there because he recognized something in this man. And he said, this is Jesus, the Messiah. Nicodemus recognized greatness. But what has to happen in our own life that allows us to see that obedience to God is more beneficial than any human acceptance? What do we have to go through to see that nothing else matters but our allegiance to the one who gave his life for us? Maybe it's something catastrophic, and maybe it's a, 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 a Paul moment where you have to get knocked off your horse. And I'll be honest, that happened for me. It had to happen that way. But at what point do we recognize that our obedience to God is the one thing that matters over any human acceptance or group? Jesus says, going down in, in uh, chapter, in verse uh, 3, he says, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Nicodemus does not ask a question. 
he hasn't even gotten to any deep theological conversation. He just kind of acknowledges who Jesus is and then in pure form of who of what the Messiah did on this earth, he comes with like a bold statement, almost an accusation saying, just so you know, no one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless they are born again. Why is he saying this? What I love about the gospel and, and understanding who Jesus is is that he always spoke with intention and with purpose. There was a reason behind everything he said. Those words in red, pay attention to them because there is a lot packed into the words that Jesus says. And he says, no one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless they are born again. It's kind of out of nowhere and I believe it probably takes Nicodemus back a little bit. When we speak, do we speak with this kind of intention? What I love is, is that the Pharisees, they were obsessed with teaching the law. They were obsessed with head knowledge of how much can we learn and how much can we spit out? How much can we teach and preach? Let me impress you with how much I know. Jesus says, it doesn't matter what you know, you got to be born again. So he's speaking these words to a man who has been teaching the law. And he's doing it for a reason. He wants Nicodemus to see, at the end of the day, this is what needs to happen. This is what really matters. Jesus speaking with intention Every time he meets with someone, he has something to accomplish. The moments that we engage with one another, are we speaking with purpose, with intentionality? How can we imitate this kind of intention? Well, first, we have to understand that we ourselves are sinners in need of saving. At the very core, this is what we must identify for ourselves. And this is what Jesus is trying to teach Nicodemus, saying, you know the law backwards and forwards, you teach it, people look up to you, but you're just like them. It doesn't matter what you know, it doesn't matter the title you've been given, it doesn't matter what crown you wear, you're just like the people that you're teaching. You are a sinner in need of saving. And unless you are born again, you, a Pharisee, even you will not enter the kingdom of heaven in the state that you're in right now. Nicodemus probably looks back and says, but I've done everything I need to do. And Jesus says, not everything. And this is why I'm here to tell you, you need to be born again. How can we imitate this intentionality, this boldness that Jesus portrays in this story with Nicodemus, someone who from the world's eyes is seen as higher than Jesus. How can we be this bold? How can we act with this kind of intention? Here's the good news about the cross. It allows us to separate ourselves from who we were and who God wants us to be. It allows us to see 
that we no longer have to live in the ways of the world, no longer have to carry the guilt and the shame because Jesus died for that specific purpose. And this is what has to happen. This is the transformation that must occur in the heart of Nicodemus if he wants to experience the things he's been actually teaching about one day. We have to get there first. One of the things that I love about this story is, one is the boldness of Jesus, but it's just the conversation that is happening. There's a lot of back and forth, and I would have loved to have just been there to hear the, res- the full response of this conversation, to see facial expressions of what was actually happening in this moment. And, and we don't know exactly who was around. We know that it was Nicodemus. He came at night, and we, we don't know why exactly, and maybe because he didn't want anyone to see where he was going. Maybe he came to him at night because of what the other, his Pharisee friends would have said if he would have been addressing this man. Maybe he didn't want him to be seen. But I, I love this story because of the boldness. And it te- there are several things that it, it can teach us. But we have to get to the point of acknowledging we are sinners in need of saving and that we must be born again. I don't really like the term sinner saved by grace because once we're saved, we're no longer identified as sinners. That is not our identification anymore. When, when, when Jesus is in the most holy place and he is, he is, he is advocating for you and, and for me and all the things that we've done, at the end of it all, Jesus puts his blood over it and says, I have covered this man, this woman. They are no longer identified as a sinner. They are identified as my son and my daughter. That's what I love about this story. And Jesus is trying to get this man to understand that it doesn't matter how much you know, you need me. We have to be willing to speak boldly, to come to that place ourselves and recognize that we need saving. If we are spreading the gospel and our motivation, if we are living like Jesus and we're being this bold, and our, motiv- and our motivation is self-glorification, then I would say we are the ones that need to hear the words that we're speaking rather than the other person first. And we do this so much. We hear a sermon, it's like, oh yeah, that was for that person, for sure. Yeah, you, you need to go hear this. Or we, we, we brag about our, our place, our place in leadership in the church. We want people to see our, our place and what title we've been given, and it's more for self-glorification than uplifting Jesus. All this, all these reasons are, are reasons for why Jesus said what he said to this Pharisee. And I think he's trying to tell us as a group of believers this same thing. Unless you're actually born again, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Are there any fishermen here? I know there are a few of you who like to fish. If you know anything about fishing, you know that, um, especially like lake fishing and bass fishing, I used to fish, um, not anymore. But I remember um, back in the day, you had, you still have, you have tons of like tackle and lure and you have to have like the right color for the right season, for the right like color water. There has to be like if you're in lake water, you have like this dark green color and you know, fish aren't dumb. They've, they've been fished for a long time. So like they know like what works and what doesn't. So we got to get more clever and make things that look as real as possible. I've even seen like little battery-operated fish that, like, move around and try to, like, lure a fish to, to take the bait. But if you know, you have to match the, the tackle or bait that you're using with the season that you're in or with the color of the sky. If, it's, if there's no clouds in the sky, you got to change your bait. If, there's, if there are clouds, that impacts how they see it. And, I mean, there's a whole science behind it. Um, I mean, you could just put a piece of bread and try to catch something, but you, it's going to be, like, this big. I mean, to catch a really big fish, and, and, you know, there's people that do this for a living and make a lot of money fishing for bass. They will get into the weeds of it on exactly what it is that you need. But they do whatever they can for this fish to take the bait. And Nicodemus, in this story, takes the bait. Jesus throws out a question, and Nicodemus entertains it, and he goes on, to ask, well, what do you mean? How can someone be born again if they are old? See, Nicodemus' head is, is in the physical, and Jesus is talking about the spiritual. Two completely different things, and this just justifies the point that Jesus is trying to make to him. But there's a reason that Nicodemus asked this. It's because Pharisees were known to be literal, even to the point of forgetting the validity of the spiritual side of the Old Testament. This practice of being born again goes back to the Old Testament, and we know what the, the sanctuary looked like and what had to happen, and a lamb that had to be sacrificed, and, and that was what we looked, looked back on from the cross. At the point of the cross, there was no need for that anymore because Jesus was that sacrifice. But the only thing that this Pharisee knows is if we got to be born again, how can we do that if we are already old? Being born again, what he means in this text is to begin a life anew in relationship to God. It's changing your manner of thinking, of feeling, and acting with reference to spiritual things. One author says, to be reborn spiritually means a fundamental and permanent revolution of one's self. So why is he saying this to Nicodemus? He's telling this to Nicodemus because he needs Jesus. He has, these, he has seen the signs and he's considered the holy of the holy, but something else needs to happen. Nicodemus would not experience salvation unless he would be born again. Now I'm speaking to those of you right now who were born into the church. You've been in the church since you wore diapers. I worry about you all the most. And I'm one of those. Your walk with God, it can be routine. 
It could just be something that's in, ingrained in you that is something you're supposed to do. It can become stale or almost just programmed. And you just do it because it's what you've always done. And Maybe you've never asked yourself that question and maybe you ask it today. Why are you here? Is it because it's the right thing to do? Following Jesus is far greater and more rich than it just being the right thing to do. Your faith, to those of you who've been in the church since diapers, I want to tell you, your faith has to be authenticated. I've said this story before, but when I graduated from high school, my first class was with um, a professor at UCF. And the class was psychology. And the one thing I realized in my first class with this psychology professor was that he was an atheist. You put psychology, an atheist professor, and a kid who just believed what he believed because it's what his parents told him to, it's going to wreck you. And it did for me. I got to the point where the things he was saying, he was completely destroying what I thought I'd believed. And I remember going to the library at UCF, and I remember finishing what I had, my homework, and then just opening scripture and just obsessing over, is this like even real? And I came to the realization that up until that point, I had claimed that I believed in Jesus without really truly knowing who he was. It was just a name, it was a, it was a story to me, but it was not my experience. I read it, I learned it, I heard it, I didn't experience it for myself. I was one of those kids who was born in the church and I knew all the songs, I had all the patches. But that's not gonna get you to heaven. We must come to a point where we recognize we are broken, we are in need of saving, and the only person that can do that is Jesus. So it was a moment for me to really figure out what I truly believed. Nicodemus' question back to Jesus tells us that he isn't even familiar with this idea of being spiritually reborn. reborn. All he knows is the physical He's only familiar with the physical birth. By what Jesus is talking about, though, he is talking about something greater than just being reborn physically. Being born of water. Ezekiel 36 talks about this. If you have time, go back and read it. But it talks about this idea of using water to be made clean by the Spirit. This is what he was referring to. So here's a question. For those of us who grew up in the church, who are old believers, the OGs, the Pharisees, if I may, is there room today to learn? And are we willing to humble ourselves as a community, as a church, as a religion, as people of the book, and realize that we don't have it all figured out? that there is room to grow and there's an opportunity for us 
And maybe that hasn't come yet to be reborn again. The implications of this are crazy dangerous. The implications of being a Nicodemus, and I'm using Nicodemus to to the church as an example, and I'll use the word church. The implications of being a vulnerable church, community, people, religion, means that we might have gotten something wrong. It may mean changing the way that we worship. It may, be, it may have implications on how we spend our money. Change the way we look at leaders and people younger than us. Parents, you can learn from your kids if you're open to it. The church, we can learn a thing or two about people who are not a part of our community if we're open to it. The church needs to learn to be open, to grow. Because if it doesn't, this is what happens. The moment the church loses its desire to learn is the moment it will begin to die. The moment we say, hey, we've got it all figured out. We did the math. We know when Jesus is going to return. We know the significance of 1844. We know about what happened in the sanctuary, what date the veil was torn. We don't need anything else. Jesus is talking to you. You can know all of that. But unless you're reborn and you're a sinner in need of saving and you acknowledge that, you will stay here with that knowledge. We are called to immerse ourselves in a state of wonder and constantly learning and growing. Nicodemus was that example to a larger group of people. He recognized his position, but he also knew that there was greatness around him. And he said, I don't know it all. And I recognize that there is something special in this man. So I'm going to step down from my Pharisaic ways and acknowledge this man and learn from him. What does that look like as a church? To be open to changing some things whether theological or not. We come up with what God, we, we, we read scripture and then we come up with these beliefs, but our interpretation, that is, that is human interpretation, not holy interpretation. Things can change and we've seen in our past and in our history, we have gotten some things wrong. But each generation has to learn that if we're not open and willing to grow as a community or as a church, that is the moment we will begin to die. Nicodemus was that example for the Pharisees. Game, recognizing game. Greatness, recognizing greatness and learning from each other. Knowing that just because I'm here doesn't mean I've got it all figured out. We are called to be constantly in a state of wonder. As we get older, this is what we're supposed to do. If we want to stay young, you hear it. My mom, she retired about a year and a half ago, and she's always busy. They are finished building a house, and um, my dad has her running errands all the time, and she's like, I feel like I do more work now than when I was actually working. And I'm like, well, that's a good thing. It keeps you busy. It keeps you young. And I remember speaking with people 
when I was a chaplain in hospice and you would, you would hear the stories. It's like, well, when they quit beginning to learn is when they slowly began to decline and to die. Many of you know Sandy Graves, knew Sandy Graves. He just passed away. He was um, our, um, our uh, what's the word, counselor on staff. Um, and now his, his daughter, Candy, um, has taken his role. But Sandy was awesome. He was the guy in the room who had more life experience than anybody else. They, they had just celebrated his 100th birthday. I remember two years ago going to his house uh, because my father-in-law was um, changing out, redoing their bathroom, and he needed help moving the tub. So I went over, and if you went into his, his house, at this point, I think Sandy's 98 years old. And um, I mean, sharp, sharp, sharp. And I remember walking in and seeing him on the left in his office. So I start a conversation. I'm like, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, I'm learning how to read the Bible in French. 98 years old. I barely know how to read it in English. And I had talked to Candy a little bit later, his, his uh, daughter, and she said he knew many languages and he learned it in many languages, something I didn't know. And he was also actually fluent in French. But this man was sharp. We loved having him around, always on staff. And he retired probably two years after I, I got here. Um, but it was just a, amazing to see someone who was at an age where you could easily say, I've lived longer than you. I've got it figured out. No, I still want to learn. I'm still open. And maybe God has something for me in the language of French that I can learn today. At 98 years old. At 98 years old, Sandy had a desire, a yearning, an obsession to obsess over the Word of God. Scripture is so rich. The desire to learn must be in our DNA. What would it look like to obsess over something that you got to have it before you go to bed and the first thing that you wake up? What would it look like? to obsess over something that you got to have it before you go to bed and before you wake up? What would it look like to obsess over someone that you got to have before you go to bed, before you got to wake up to learn from him, to be open to what he's calling you to, to something new, to something different? Yes, we are saved by grace. We are identified by Jesus. But the learning, the growing doesn't end there. That is just the beginning. My prayer for this community, for this church, is that we never get to a place of pharisaical value where we think we got, we've known it all and we can't learn anything from anybody else. Because Jesus has a word for you, for this church, and it changes and it's moving. And the moment we think we've known it all, that we've got it all figured out, is the moment this church will no longer exist. One of my professors said this. 
people always wonder, when is Jesus going to return? And he says, I believe Jesus hasn't returned because we haven't done our job yet. My prayer is that we come down from our seat as a Pharisee, as a group of people, and we truly come to our knees and ask God, God, what are you trying to teach us today? What do I need to do? What do I need, what do I need to change in my life? And maybe you're the one who needs to be born again. Maybe you've never taken that step, but you know everything front, front and back of this word. But you've yet to say, God, I'm a sinner in need of saving and I need to be born again. My prayer is for, as a community that we collectively approach our world, our community, outside of this building, outside of Forest Lake, this way. That we constantly learn and grow and that we be the example, that we be the Nicodemus to seek out Jesus, to recognize when he's speaking to us and that may Jesus radically transform your life, this church, and this city. Father God, Lord, we are in awe of who you are. Lord, before we jump the gun and, and we we plan for great things and, and, and we have big dreams and visions and know whatever goals that we have to achieve, may we first know that it starts with you, with an acceptance of your son in our life. Acknowledging that we don't know it all. That we don't have it all together. That we are just a group of humans trying to figure this out. May our hearts be open to your leading. May our hearts be open to your son. That is the one thing that will can truly transform us. It's not any knowledge. It's not any title. It's not being part of a specific church or religion. It's knowing Jesus. May that be the center, our focal point. May that be where we take off from. May we accept you in these next few moments as our Savior, as our King. And may we leave this place knowing that our battles, our calling, it's already been won. It's already been determined. May we die so you can live in us. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.